1: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back
2: to the Foreman Podcast from the Searcy Institute Podcast Network podcast about the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture and the audio companion to form a journal. I'm Heidi White, and in this episode, I speak with special guest David Kern. Hi, David. How are you?
0: Hello. I'm great. Thanks for having me on.
2: Oh, it's just it's great to have you here. Uh, if you're a longtime former subscriber or a listener to this podcast or some of the others available from the Circe Institute, you recognize David Kern as the voice of the people. And,
1: um, I like
0: that.
2: I'm uh, The reading that. people, the literary people, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> David Kern is our fearless leader over here at Forma Journal, uh, and uh, he's the host of the Daily Poem and the creator and host of the Searcy Institute Close Reads Podcast Network. The editor in chief of Forma Journal. And the vice president of integrated resources for the Searcy Institute. And he and his family live in Concord, North Carolina, the bustling metropolis. Uh,
0: They did just shut down downtown. So it's a big city now. There's construction on Main Street or Union Street. So it's like living in a big city now. We might as well be living in Austin. Wow. Yeah.
2: Wow. Um, That's funny. I just, what, you picked Austin out of all of the cities that you picked. They have traffic,
0: traffic problems. I know that as as soon as I said that, I thought that was an interesting choice, but
2: (laughs) I know. So my challenge in this particular podcast, David and I talk to each other a lot. Uh, my challenge (laughs) is going to be sticking to the subject and not just wandering. Okay, go ahead.
0: Go ahead. Introduce the subject. I won't talk about traffic anymore.
2: Okay, no more talk of Austin, which is one of my favorite cities, too, and I assume that that's where that was going. Um, but I, I did invite you here today, David, to have a conversation about a really exciting new project uh, that you've been spearheading, uh, the new book release from Cersei Institute Publishing, 30 Poems to Memorize Before It's Too Late. Uh, so first and foremost... We have all been wondering, and if this is the first that you've heard of the book, you are probably wondering right exactly now, why the ominous title? (laughs) What does it mean? And how will we know when it is too late?
0: Well, you'll be dead. Okay. And so you won't be able to keep memorizing. Uh, Short of being dead, first your brain will probably stop working properly. Uh, that happens to us each in varying degrees. Um, for example, <laughs> my eight-year-old is much better at memorizing than I am and I'm in my 30s. So it to me is just a foreshadowing of the dark days ahead. Um, it's meant to be a little tongue-in-cheek, of course. You know, It's meant to just kind of be fun. It's, it's meant to allude to the fact that it's true that we only have so much time to be on this earth, but we also only have so much space that we can fill our head with. Good things, right? We, our heads only have so much space, if you will, and so part of, part of it is it's a time thing. You know, we really only do have so much time, and so we're kind of playing with that. It's meant, it's like I said, it's meant to be tongue in cheek. But there's also, <clears throat> I don't know if there's literally only so much space in our brains. <laughs> I'm sure someone could actually speak to that. But in reality, in terms of what we can actually process and contemplate, there's only so much space that we have, and so. Why not fill it with good things that are worth remembering, that are worth keeping there, and that are worth going back to, as opposed to, you know, things that aren't. So, so hopefully right. all these poems fulfill that sort of, that goal of filling our head with things that are worth filling it with.
2: Well, it also broadens your target audience because death is a hundred percent. Coming for us all. So anybody, literally anybody. This
0: book is for anybody who is alive but is going to die. Yeah, yeah. It's like what about Bob, right? It's like that kid. You've seen that movie, right? I have
2: indeed. The little kid.
0: We're going.
2: We're all going to die.
0: And Bill Murray just kind of looks at him. So, in this case, I'm that kid who is (laughs) (laughs) saying, um, it's not really that dark, but I am. I have had fun kind of playing playing it up a little bit. So right. You know. So if you are not dead, Admit, it's just my sense of you. humor, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. I like that. That should be the new like tagline for the marketing.
2: Thank you. If, you are not dead. Yeah.
0: You are not dead. This book is for this you. This book
2: is for you. Yeah. I remember vividly the moment it dawned on me that my children were capable of memorizing anything and it should be good mm. things to your point. And it was uh, when I was researching homeschooling when my oldest was, I don't know, four or five years old, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for school. And um, I had read about classical education, and I was like, I'm all in. I love this, but they're going to have to, like, memorize all of these things. And I was so intimidated by that. And, And then I remember Jack just like skipping along down the street when we were on a walk, just quoting Finding Nemo, like the entire movie, like entire scenes from the movie. And I was like, Oh, we're going to be fine. Like, is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Kids
0: yeah, they are do it capable anyway.
2: of learning. Yeah. Might as well yeah. be goodness, truth, and beauty. So yeah. tell yeah. us about the origins of the book. How did the idea germinate and come to fruition? As like a gardening metaphor that I just did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm Must kind be a of a poet. poet so.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, where did the idea... You know, I was thinking about this the other day and I don't really remember exactly where it came from. But I remember I remember being at our Summer Institute retreat, actually, and talking to some people about it and pitching the idea. Like, I remember Andrew Poodle was there at lunch. I think you were there. Um, a couple other people. This was th- like Ask 13 Jared, months ago yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. And I'd had the idea in my head for all these different anthologies, but the anthologies that were... Uh, you know, you get anthologies sometimes where the poems are selected because... Well, obviously, because they're by the same poet, right? Like you might have the best of Walt Whitman or something. And then sometimes you have anthologies that are built around, say, um, summer poems or just the seasons or romance poems or something like that. So there's a theme to them. And so I was thinking, you know... Are, is the, like in a way that's kind of impractical. Hmm. Like if it's during the summer, I might go read that, but it's much harder to take an anthology built around a theme and build it into your everyday life, like your sort of your literary life, I guess you know. Um, and so then I started thinking that one of the things that people are always trying to always talking about, especially people who value poetry and poets, is the idea of memorizing. And then I was thinking it's too bad that there's not an anthology that is geared specifically towards helping you memorize. Like there's poems that are selected because they're memorizable. Um, Whether it's because the form is, has things that are good for grasping onto, you know, like the sort of handheld, you know, handholds or something that is not a gardening metaphor. Um, And, (laughs) or, or, you know, because they're um, just beautiful. And so they are worth keeping in your head. So that's, you know, I was, Thinking, let's you know, can we create an anthology that's just built around that concept that can help people specifically memorize? So, every poem in the book then has been chosen for that purpose. Um, so I so I threw the idea out there to a couple people at lunch and they seemed to like it. So, we, we kind of ran with it and um, Made it talked to yeah, talked to different poets who I've gotten to know over the years. And um, once people started saying, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, like once you had poets like James Matthew Wilson or Morris Manning or even um, you know, someone who's a critic like Anthony Esselin and people like that started saying, Sally Thomas was another one who started saying, Yeah, this sounds like a great idea. That's really interesting. Once they started saying they're in, that's when it really started to take off and started to sort of cohere.
2: Hmm. So tell us about the format of the book. How how could such a book help us memorize poetry? What what should people be looking for?
0: Well, okay. So to be fair, when I set out to sort of build the structure and was talking to you all, you know, you contributed as well. So I was talking to all the contributors about the poems and and whatnot. I was sort of thinking like, if I was trying to add more memorization to my life, which I am, and it's something that I'm not good at, like I'm actually not good at like I, I'll get random pieces of information from movies or sports or something, and I'll be able to remember them for a long time. But I'm actually pretty bad at memorizing a poem. I have a lot. It takes a lot of work for me. So I was thinking, if I'm going to put the time in, which a lot of people want to do, they value it, so they want to put the time in, then I need it to be something that is actually um, doable. You know, hmm. something attackable. Hmm. So, um, th- so the idea was to create to get poems that weren't too long, that are. You know, not too many of them. Thirty seems like you know, spend a couple of years with it, and you can memorize thirty poems. Mm-hmm. We don't want to do a hundred poems. We also didn't want it to be too slight and do ten. Like we want it to be a challenge, but also, you know, just be achievable. And so, you were asking about the structure of the book. So then, what we did is we looked for poems that fit that bill. But then we, but then I was thinking it can't just be the poem. Like, yeah, that's an, an anthology is just a list of poems. That's fine. But can we? can we have commentary on those poems that are contemplations based on why the poem is memorizable? Mm-hmm. So it should, it should help sort of unlock what's going on in the poem, but not in a way that gives everything, gives gives everything away. Because if you're going to memorize a poem, the point is you want to retain some of the mystery in memorizing it, mm-hmm. because if it's going to be in your head for a long, long time and you're going to keep coming back to it. That's when the mysteries get unlocked. So we didn't want to have commentary that just says, this is the whole poem. You don't need to spend any time with it now because you, we've unlocked all the secrets. We wanted the essays to be contemplations that showed this is what the poet is doing here with form. This is what they're doing with the themes. This is how these things connect. And this is how... These are some tips for memorizing it. So if you notice this thing about it, that's a thing to help you give you a tip or something to grab onto for your brain to grab onto as you're memorizing it. So every poem, there's 30 poems and then that means there's also 30 brief essays. They're around 1500 words each. So they're, you can read them in one sitting easily. It takes about what 10 15 minutes to read them Mm -hmm. um and you can go back to them and you know we left big margins so you can write in the margins and all that sort of stuff to to help to to help give yourself the you know some structure to your to your memorizing
2: well it's also along with with all of that practical help and uh the kind of rich fodder for contemplation it's also just a beautiful book just some amazing (laughs) illustrations talk a little bit about that
0: yeah, so each section has a well, the book's divided up by the poets themselves. So some poets there's one poem, some poets there's multiple. So like Shakespeare and Homer and Frost, for example, these like the ones that are everybody accepts are the great the greats. There's multiple poems by them. So we divided the book up by by the author in alphabetical order. And then with that we have the, the poems and the reflections, but we also have a little biographical section for a little bit of background. And then we have got these great lino cuts. They're black and white, awesome lino cuts that Kirsty Rafato, who works for us here at Cersei, she's an artist and she made these, you know, each of them by hand. And then we scan them and put them into the book. And That's so amazing. we wanted yeah, we wanted to add a little bit of, you know, make it more interesting visually, but also, you know, the images have a sort of poetry about them mm-hmm. in and of themselves. We chose, you know, like we did not want to choose just the po- the images that everybody knows for all of them because mm-hmm. So, so sometimes you'll get like, I think Frost is really young, whereas most people think of him as being a white-haired seventy-five-year-old guy or whatever. I don't know if he actually lived to be seventy-five exactly, but you get the point. So <laughs> he's he's young, and then like the, even the Shakespeare one and the John Donne one are you know kind of not ones you're going to see all the time. The Wendell Berry one is one of my favorites. He's like in his forties, whereas most people think of him as, as you know seventy-five or eighty, seventy-five year old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they, it turns out it takes most poets you think of as old takes men. It takes them a long time to get old, men. right? Yeah. You're either John Keats and you die when you're 24 or you live to be very old and that's how people think of you. There's not very not very many famous middle-aged no, poets. Feeling <laughs> a little
2: bit existential.
0: Because so. <laughs> they're just slaving away on their work during that time. No, no actually, time get famous. I
2: love that about the book. I, you know, you, you know this about me, David. I think books and food should be beautiful because that's those are the good things of life and they should yeah. look as good as they feel and nourish us and all that. So that's one of my favorite things about it. And I love how Kirsty interpreted the poets, like their eyes just have this quality, that yeah. the way their eyebrows, the expression on their faces, the, the thick and thin yeah. lines, yeah. like they're just really incredible interpretations of, of the poets in the poems, uh, just as the commentary. Yeah, she
0: deserves a ton of credit. Mm-hmm it would not be the same book without without the illustrations i mean we could have found we knew from the beginning we wanted to have some images of them and we we talked about all kinds of different scenarios you know you can you can find images online there's paintings of some of them or photographs and we could have done the full page versions of that but the illustrations like this have they have as you said a kind of an interpretive element to them and they just they're just different they're un, they're unusual for this sort of thing and that makes them really compelling so um, some of them are like, because they're a lino cut, they're slightly, you know, off center a little bit, like they're slightly, you know, to one o'clock on the slightly diagonal or just kind of, they don't, they don't fit right in the center of the page, which I kind of enjoy the, the, the rough edges of that. I think there's some on Amazon too, but if you go to our website, if you go to com slash 30 poems, there are a few of these illustrations are actually on the site so you can see them. And I think we've also posted some to social media as well. So I should, we should actually do a video of Kirsty talking about what she was doing with some of these. That'd be really cool. That's
2: a great idea. You should definitely oh, yeah. do that. I'm, I'm just, I'm a huge fan. So usually when I do these interviews, I send the questions on ahead of time to people, but I didn't do that today because one of my favorite things about conversations with David is how he thinks on his feet. I like that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw one at you and see what you say here. Um, mm-hmm, why mm-hmm. Why is memorizing poetry an important discipline? Like what happens to us when we memorize poetry versus when we don't? And I mean, you could go with either the memorization piece or, or specifically oriented towards poetry. I'd like to hear what you think about why it matters, not just to memorize, but to memorize poetry.
0: Well, the first thing I feel like I should say is the, for the first thing, my brain wants to think about <laughs> is that the, there's lots of things you can memorize that are valuable other than poetry too. It's not this book is not the suggestion that the best thing or the only thing or the most important thing necessarily is to memorize poetry.
2: You have to know where your um, keys are and like your yeah, phone number. Yeah, well,
0: <laughs> I don't know about either of those things. Do you things know where your but, keys
2: are right now?
0: Um, yeah, they're right here. They're right on the desk. <laughs> I wasn't sure though. I did have to look, um. But I mean, you know, there you can. There's value in memorizing historical facts or um, sports stats. Or you know, there's value in memorizing all kinds of things. Um, but the the specific value in memorizing poetry is that I think there is truly nurturing, life changing value in just memorizing things that are beautiful. Um, you talked about how food, you know, food and books should be beautiful. I think there's just value in beautiful things and surrounding ourselves with beautiful things. I mean, it's kind of like we, you know, we value, you know, a rose garden, right? Or, or uh, you know, to go to the food metaphor, you know, when you go to a restaurant and someone plates something and it's really beautiful and there's just kind of takes your breath away. Or you watch a movie, a movie with a beautiful scene or you read prose that's, you know, that moves you. Beauty is... It's important, and so poetry is one of the ways to fill our minds with beautiful things in a way that also has form and structure and gives you a lot to think about for a long time. A great poem is great is worth memorizing, not because once you have it memorized, you can recite it, but because once you have it in your head, you can contemplate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can contemplate it over long periods of time, and the more you contemplate it, the more it sort of opens itself up, the more it's sort of, you know, like if you think about it like a garden, the more the bush, the rosebush flowers, right? Um, over, over time. And then sometimes it goes dormant and then it comes back and the flowers are different. Um, although the rosebush at my house is completely dead. So, you know,
2: That's really that's sad. That's, I really like that rosebush. Yeah.
0: yeah. We're going to have to have a whole different conversation about that though. I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I think having, having things in our minds to contemplate over long periods of time that are beautiful, I think is important. I wrote about it a little bit in the preface to the book. um, Cause you know, so like we can go online and queue up a poem anytime. Mm -hmm. So we don't memorize it to queue up the poem. Like memorizing poetry is not so that when we're at a dinner party, you can queue up the poem and impress people that you have poetry in your brain. Sure. That's a great side effect. You know, <laughs> it's you know. sometimes people want to talk about poetry and if you can just pull it up, there's value in that. But it's what it's really about is being able to have something beautiful in your mind that's there for a long time that can change you and that you can spend time with and you can come back to. Um, and sure, some poems are going to be more rooted there than mm-hmm. others. Some you're going to forget over time. They're not going to be as meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there might be a turn of phrase in it that sticks with you for a long time. And that turn of phrase is worth having there that that couplet or that line or even just that stands or that you know the two words put together the image or something that you know the the idea that, that can stick with you f- forever is uh, and you never know when you're gonna need it right when it can be meaningful or valuable to you
2: i really i love what you're i think the thing that's standing out to me the most i do like the gardening metaphor when it comes to poetry because there are so many parallels um is the the idea of dormancy and coming back to life and i'm thinking specifically about a, a personal situation a few years ago we our family went through a pretty hard thing when we had to forgive somebody for a very grievous offense and i kept thinking during that time the quality of mercy is not strained it just came alive. Like there is this sense in which that Portia's speech in the merchant of Venice about the value of mercy and her, uh, and the context for that within the play, when she is begging somebody who is demanding justice, but really using justice as revenge to have mercy. She's begging this. She's, she's begging then Shylock to do that and he won't. And that the, the speech is very famous. It's very beautiful. um, But it was dormant, right? It's not something you think about every day, but because it was enough in my mind that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't perfectly. I mean, even now I can't quote it um, all the way. Yeah. but
0: It's in the book and I can't quote it. (laughs) Yes,
2: but it's that sense of dormancy and the coming alive when you need it. And there's something about the beauty and the precision and the order of poetry that ennobles the ordinary experiences of life. and, and kind of makes them come alive um, when we need them. You know, like when we're pulling weeds yeah. during Lent and you're thinking about your sins or whatever. And and there's this sense of that's what poetry in many ways does. It creates, it, it's a metaphor for the deeper things of life. And so when you're in those deeper things of life, whatever you memorize can can be available for you. I like that dormancy idea a lot.
0: Yeah. In the preface, um, I I read about I wrote, I shared a quote by Catherine Robson. I don't know if you've heard of her book Heartbeats: Everyday Life and the Memorized Poem. No, um, it's worth checking out. But she says, if we do not learn by heart, the heart does not feel the rhythms of poetry as echoes or variations of its own insistent beat. And so I was th- I was thinking a lot while working on the book about how when we memorize, like. Uh, in the book I put it at to memorize is to inhabit and be inhabited by that which is transcendent. And so I, I kept thinking about had that, that idea in my head and I kept thinking about the sort of awe-inspiring notion that you can have Shakespeare or Dickinson or Rena Espyat or T. S. Eliot like in as a part of you. Mm-hmm. Like that their words and their language and the the ideas and the images that they're they're creating can can actually, like, invade us, you know, inhabit us, and like help us be different people, and uh, and plus it's like a collection point for tradition, and huh. like
2: Go on. I think that's an love that.
0: Well, I think for centuries that's people valued memorization because it was you were passing on something meaningful. It wasn't. It was there was something collective and bigger than just yourself about it. So on the one hand, there is the personal, but there's also the the grander social idea that... I mean, think about it. Like Homer was passed on through the oral tradition, right? So people were memorizing stories and passing them on. Um, Shakespeare was performed. So people were memorizing lines and passing those lines on to the audience. That speech you just talked about, that wasn't printed and given to people to just buy in the local bookstop, bookshop. They had to go to the show and hear someone's, someone who had memorized it and then interpreted it on the stage. Sure, with a little help from the actual playwright. But... but it was still memorization was how culture was passed on. And although we have books now, and, and they're easy to come by, and we can even find them on our devices in many cases, I think that when we memorize them, and we memorize them together with other people, say our children or students in our classrooms, what we're doing is we're helping pass on the value of the, of the tradition itself, not just the value of the poem or the value of memorization, but the value of the tradition of literature, the value... Of Tra- the, tra- the tradition of the literary arts themselves and we're emphasizing our cultural need for them and so that's a big part of why I think you know my, my hope is that a book like this can play a small part in that but books of poetry of all kinds are so important poetry is not a huge part of our culture right now mm-hmm. I think that's going to wax and wane throughout the rest of eternity like mm-hmm. or the rest of time that the earth is still around um, I think that the value of poetry is going to wax and wane but I think that without even though it's not a huge part of it, it's still a sustaining heartbeat or maybe a sustaining organ. Like what's an, what's an organ that keeps someone alive but is not necessarily the one we talk about all the time? <laughs> <laughs> I think literature, although it's maybe not super popular, po- poetry in particular is not super popular, that it exists is crucial mm. to, to the sustenance of a culture.
2: Mm-hmm. And then it's passed down. Right. Within, yeah. within the context of... Trusted relationships. I love the idea of memorizing a lot of these poems with our kids. You know, a lot of our audience, uh, our classroom teachers, homeschooling parents, uh, school administrators, um, and and a book, a book like this gives a framework, a language for and and some very practical ideas and specific poems uh, for memorizing. What do you think about, you know, as I was flipping through the book, um, flipping through, carefully reading this (laughs) amazing book, um, (laughs) like a lot, there's a lot of the uh, reflections really are geared more towards adults, Um, like more, more towards like abstract reasoning. What would you say about, uh, you know, Because a lot of these books are, or excuse me, a lot of these poems um, have just a great, great depth to them. Is it still worth memorizing for children these these kinds of poems?
0: I think it's a hilarious misconception that when I first read a poem, I'm going to know more about it than my kid. (laughs) I think that, like, if I read a poem that's complex with my eight-year-old, I've got more background in literature to know what to look for. Like I've got more, I've I've acquired more knowledge over the years just from practice. So I know more what to look for. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to see things that I don't see. And it doesn't mean that what I see is inherently more valuable than what he sees, even if the poem is really complex. And it doesn't mean that either of us are actually going to get to the bottom of what the poem is actually saying. And that's why, that's why we memorize though. That, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier, because we memorize so that it can be something we contemplate for a long time. Like if my eight year old memorizes, um, let me just open to one randomly. If he memorizes love three by George Herbert, which is actually a very memorizable poem for a young kid, Mm -hmm. then he's going to have that in his, first of all, it's going to be easier for him to memorize than it is for me. And second, he's going to have that in his head forever. To some degree, like he might have to go, you know, we'll want to go back and brush up on it, you know, so to speak. But he's going to have that in his head and he's going to, it's going to come back to him and he's going to be contemplating it and he's going to be thinking about it. And he's going to be able to spend years discovering that poem. And what, and, and that poem's going to spend years like unfurling itself. I don't know, right. you know, uh, revealing its hidden mysteries or something. So, To start that when they're young is going to help children get a head start on getting those skills or those that practice that I was describing earlier. I've had practice, but you you have to start when you're younger to get years of practice. And the earlier you start, the more practice you're going to have over the years, even if you can't name all the things that you're doing. So while the essays are geared maybe more towards the adult or the teacher, um, and maybe an eight-year-old is not going to read them. Um, I think they definitely could be read by a high schooler. But the, um, by memorizing the poem and thinking about it, it's going to teach the kids how to think about poetry. Yeah. That's the best way to learn how to think about poetry. That's a better way to think about poetry than me saying, here's some ways to read poetry. The first thing you have to do is actually be around poetry. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really care that much if they get all the depth of the poems. Um, because... When I first read a poem, unless it's a very simple poem or a very short poem or whatever, I don't know. Even a mediocre poem, I have to spend a decent amount of time with to have any idea what it's really doing. Um, if, I mean, there are bad poems and right away you can tell. Yes. This, this, there's not a lot of complexity to this. This person is not a great poet or wasn't when, this moment when they wrote this poem was not their highest achievement. Right. <laughs> um, let's put it that way. But that's why you spend time with them and when you spend time with them the poem teaches you the poem will teach you how to think about itself and it will teach you how to think about poetry in general hmm. and so that's why kids should should read them that was a little long-winded i was doing some thinking on my feet while i was talking
2: <laughs> oh i think that i really like what you said about the poem will teach you how to read it which goes back to your earlier point that you made david that the longer the the more time you spend with a poem the more it kind of gives up its secrets, right? It gives up mm-hmm. its soul. And and as readers and memorizers, we bring ourselves to a poem and um we bring our own experiences, our own biases, our own feelings and you know yeah. moods or whatever. Um
0: yeah.
2: and and that interaction That's why we reread. That's right. That interaction between a poem and the reader is one of my most favorite things about poetry, because what poetry is by nature, most of the time poetry is ambiguous. It leaves room for interpretation. There's negative space. Uh, And this conversation you have, I have had before, um, about the purpose of poetry one of the reasons that a poet that poetry even exists is for the sake of that negative space that leaves room for the reader to come at it and have an experience with it and that's not mm-hmm. true for every form of writing right like there right, yeah. you can read an essay wrong and get the wrong thing out of it and you just read the whole thing wrong <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but with a yeah. poem there's a little more room for the mystery of an interaction it's almost like making a friend or forming a relationship and I love that yeah. about poetry. Like a lot.
0: Yeah, the relationship thing is a really apt metaphor. I think I, I think that there is something where spending time with <laughs> Yeah, spending time with a poem is like being married or being in a friendship or something like it's true. Y- the idea, you know, you learn how to be friends with people. Like everybody sort of being friends with you is different than being friends with Graham Pittman, right? Mm-hmm. Or like in a in a way, like I don't over put too fine a point on it, but like in a way, I didn't actually know how to be married to my wife when I first got married. And she kind of had to teach me that. And that's by like in a way it's like by revealing herself to me, like like me getting to know her. Um, and she gets, you know, you get to know someone in that and they are revealing the things that motivate them, the things that Drive them the things they love the things they dislike all that sort of thing and that's how you learn to be in a relationship with that person the more, as they reveal themselves and you reveal yourself to them you figure out a way to 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 have a to have a relationship that's healthy hopefully um, and I think in some ways that's kind of how poetry is it's revealing you know it's revealing itself as you spend time with it and over the years I think probably when I go back to these poems in 10 years, like say I paid, say this book sits dormant on my shelf for a few years <laughs> and I go back to it and I start looking at some of the poems, the experiences that I had with the, when I was writing the reflections on the, the ones that I wrote in this book, I'm probably going to feel differently about them and they're going to reveal things to my, to me. And my, I might not even agree with what some bit of what I wrote on, on say a Paul Lawrence Dunbar poem or something like that. So, but that's the brilliant thing about poetry. That's the fun thing about it. And, Hopefully people will come to this book and be able to have arguments with the things that we're writing in our contemplations. <laughs>
2: right. I hope so. I hope I get some emails. Like I didn't yeah. see that at you all. You are a crazy person, have, Heidi. Yeah. <laughs> so um I mean I get those emails like all the time.
0: Your Can I ask you a person, question? Part? Yeah. What's your um oh the ones that you didn't write? What's your what poems like have stood out the most to you that from that maybe you didn't know you what you thought about them before or you were unfamiliar or I'm just curious.
2: Um, hmm, hmm, hmm.
0: you're like a test case.
2: <laughs> so, oh, the I like this meta thing that's happening. The interviewee becomes the. Interest. <laughs> um, I think that. So I'd never read. Right, I know. I'd never read the Dana Goya poem. Words. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christine. Yeah, that's a
1: great.
2: Oh man, uh, Christine Perrin's comment. So two different experiences with Christine's essays here. Um, I'd never read the Dana Goya poem. And so, and her essay really opened it up. I didn't spend Mm. any time contemplating the poem. I just read the poem then I read the essay. Um, and it was, I mean, her reflections are lovely. The next one that I want to comment on is her, her reflection on those winter Sundays, which is one of my favorite poems. That's probably my top. 10 poems ever. And she saw some things in that poem that I had never thought of before. And I've thought about Mm -hmm. that poem for years. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you said earlier about memorizing poems with people, which I love that idea. And I hope people do that. I hope that, uh, you know, book clubs get together, um, online communities form something that's let's all memorize these poems together because if you have a relationship with a poem and then you add another person's relationship with that poem and create a conversation about that, that is special, like really mm-hmm. special. Yeah. And yeah. I think talking about stories and poetry and thing writing is one of, I mean, one of the f- most amazing ways to create a friendship. Um. Because yeah. you're not just, yeah. you're talking, whenever you're talking about a book or a poem, you're talking about yourself, even if you're hiding it or cloaking it in some way. And then if you're the kind of person who pays attention to that, then that enters into the relationship with the person that you're talking about the book with or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. and so I kind of felt that a little bit reading Christine's Reflections um, on those winter Sundays. How about back, the same question back at you? Also, your essay on preludes is really, really lovely. I loved it. And <laughs> I know that's not what you were fishing for, but <laughs> I, I just, I remember editing it before it went into the book and it was like, David Kern, ladies and gentlemen. So read that one.
0: I think the poem, well, okay. So of the ones that I wrote, the, po- the one that um, I had the hardest time with. Can and I guess? That, uh, yeah. Kenyon. No, actually, no, no. Oh, um, why is that the the worst one that I wrote? No, that's um, not what
2: I meant at all. It's because it's a simple poem. So.
0: Well, I spent a lot of time thinking about that poem. Uh-huh. So I was anticipating writing about that one. The one that I was not sure that I I was kind of dreading having to write about was Wallace Stevens' The House Was Quiet and The World Was Calm. Huh. And so that one was the one that I had to spend a lot of time with. And in some ways, it's sort of like, you know, in in spending a lot of time with it. I don't want to say that I have like the, secret to it but it, it un- I felt uh-huh. like I, I knew it in a way that I never had before I, there's lots that I don't understand about that my, poem, my um, essay on it might be complete nonsense but I feel like I have a better sense of it than I did. Uh, one of the ones that for me was really uh, great was um, the Richard Wilbur poem Love Calls Us to mm-hmm. the Things of the World which was... to me has always been a fascinating poem but a complete mystery and James Matthew Wilson's essay James, on it yeah. it's called All That Is Clear and Orderly really helped me understand that poem and James Matthew Wilson is an incredible poet himself, and uh, did a wonderful job on you know sort of opening that one up and helping helping me understand it. So um, that's probably one of the ones that I would say is um, where I feel like I I feel like I I feel differently about it than I did before. Um, we had a, we have one in here by Wendell Berry, which is a poem that I didn't didn't know a lot about before we did me this book. Me
2: neither. I loved it. Yeah, it's I'd great. never read it before. Ever.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. man, that is a beautiful poem.
0: Yeah, it's called "Early in the Year" by my Friend's Gift. It's one of his Sabbath poems, and Jeffrey Bilbro wrote a love wrote a love re, lovely, uh, reflection on that one. Jeffrey Bilbro wrote a lovely reflection. There's a lot of
2: right. Art there was uh, involved uh, in sounds. And, yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Um, so that's one I definitely would say check out. Um, I mean, there, I, I'm really proud of, of the work that everyone did. I actually feel. Um, I was really nervous about the the selections, not because I felt like they weren't good, but you just kind of hope that they all sort of cohere. And um, we we had a list of hundreds of poems that we narrowed down. You know, we had a number of poets and, and scholars who helped us, you know, help to nominate poems and then whittle it down. And one of my fears, I don't know, my anxieties about the book was, was the ones that we ended up choosing going to have Feel like they all sort of belong together. Um, cause it's one thing for them to say that they're all memorizable and that's, that's all well and good. That's valuable. But it's also good if somehow they feel like they belong in the same book. And I think they do. I, I and I'm, that's one of the things that I'm really glad about. Um, and we had, we tried to have a good mix of contemporary with classic poems, you know, some Shakespeare and plays and sonnets and then Homer and some, some ancient stuff as well as, you know, people who are the essentials, the Frosts and the Dickensons and so forth. And then people who are living now. So, um,
2: did you see any threads of connection between as, as you were putting this together? I know that we just did it, um, alphabetically, which was a great idea. Um, But as you looked at these 30 poems and knowing the people who were on the panel who voted for these poems and all that, was there any kind of threads of connection going through the majority of these poems that you noticed?
0: Through, well, you mean like themes?
2: Mm, Yeah, anything that you were like, oh, I thought this was going to be a random collection of poems, but they're kind of joined by a, a, a united front in some way you're united
0: okay so i was thinking about this a little bit recently i think that almost this might just be because this is a common thing in poetry itself i think a lot of poetry is about empathy Hmm. a lot of poetry is about being a poet and a lot of poetry is about what you do when the world around you is not what you hoped it would be Um, and I think those three things are pretty tied together. And so I think those three threads run through almost all of these poems, those three themes, um, both sort of the pursuit of empathy. Um, and then at times even being empathetic towards other people. Um, but then also trying to express, you know, some sort of steadfastness in the face of a world that when everything seems to be collapsing around you. And oftentimes, um, what people do who are poets when that's happening is they, Turn to poetry, and so that's sometimes when poetry about poetry begins to emerge. Right. Um, no. So I'd say those are the three things that that have stood out to me. I'm sure there are others, but right. I'm sure someone reading will be able to to note it. Um,
2: oh, I really like that. I think I noticed along with that, and maybe this is just a different way of saying that that this is a collection of poets represented in this. In this anthology, that um, have like a lot of hope for the world, like a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of willingness, you know there's plenty of depressing but there's plenty of poets who write about the loss of hope and 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 this is certainly not a collection of poets that shy away from hard things from from the experience of of suffering but there's not a despairing one among them right there's not there's there's just yeah, this right. sense of an invitation into a deeper life and into a more hopeful life and into you know finding threads of of beauty and um and transcendence yeah
0: yeah I think there's a big difference between desperation and despair, and I think a lot of poetry focuses on the concept or is it, it is about desperation, but poetry that's about despair rarely lasts.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it rarely is um it's also really worth memorizing. not be like there's formal reasons why it's worth memorizing, but its can be difficult, you know, to difficult material to keep in your head. But I think desperation is a different thing. And can lead to some great poetry. I think a lot of great poetry comes from a sort of desperation, either to get the words on the page or to express some experience you're going through.
2: Hmm. Right. Well, and there's an energy to a desperate poem.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. It's like
2: clamoring, right? I like
0: Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem in here actually is kind of like that to me. Hmm. Um, It's a very famous poem. Um, Let's see if I can find it. Because even when you read it from the very beginning, it would be under D, wouldn't it?
2: That Yeah. going, <laughs> going the wrong about. way
0: here. Page forty-two. Yeah, it's called,
2: yeah.
0: Yeah, it's called sympathy, and uh, you know, like that first line. I know what the caged bird feels, alas. And there's a sort of the poem has this thread of desperation through it, um, and also a sort of cry for empathy.
2: Mm.
0: But it's not a des. It's not. It's desperate, but not full of despair. I think it's a good example of that sort of thing.
2: Mm. Oh, I like that. So final question, really important uh-huh. question. And there is uh-huh. a right answer. Who is your favorite contributor to the project and why is it <laughs> Heidi White?
0: Cause you wrote the most.
2: <laughs> I did write the most. That's not wrong. You, you wrote you, the
0: most. Well, you I mean, and, okay. Yeah. Other than me, yeah. you wrote them, you wrote a, uh, you wrote, was it four? Four.
2: Mhm.
0: Yeah, and then you helped you then you also um put some eye, eyes on my essays. I edited everybody else's but then I needed someone to look at mine because you can never edit your own writing. So, so you true. helped you helped, you know, put some eyeballs on my writing and keep me from being embarrassing myself.
2: I'm so glad so. you didn't you just you didn't say you're not my favorite contributor. Although that might be true, but thank you for not saying it.
0: <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that on yep. the podcast you're hosting. <laughs> I would just write a poem about that and then put it in a, a glass bottle or something and throw it out to sea.
2: No, oh, you so should that send one it day to me for me to edit it. it. <laughs> and then, so.
0: Yeah, like in Frankenstein, where he edits the guy's reflections to make him look better or something.
2: Right. Um, all right. Well, I guess we have to wrap this up. But David, thank you so much. Uh, of course. Not only for being here, but for for the book. Um, from what I'm seeing, it's it's unique. Um, and it will help a lot of people go further up and further into their particular experience with poetry. Thank you. I um, hope so. so. Thank you for that. And yeah. listeners, you can order your copy of 30 Poems to Memorize Before You Die. Is that not the right title?
0: <laughs> no, it's not the right title. Come on. <laughs>
2: 30 Poems to Memorize Before It's Too Late uh, from the Circe Institute at www.searcyinstitute.org. And while you're there, browse around. Uh, It's well into school year planning season. The Searcy Institute offers a myriad of great resources for your school and homeschool needs. And don't forget to subscribe to Forma Journal and our online Forma Review, which offers media reviews, interviews, retrospectives, book recommendations, and essays sent straight to your inbox weekly. And you can find us at www.formajournal.substack.com. You can also just go to formajournal.com and it'll direct you. Um, also, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, like, and review this podcast wherever you get your podcast. It makes a big impact on our platform and we surely. Appreciate it. And thank you for tuning in. Uh, and we'll catch you next time on the Forma podcast, where we will continue to explore the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture.